Welcome to The District, the official podcast of The Spectator World. My name is Matt Purple, and I'm joined by Ben Dominic, and we're going to be talking today about the latest Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. It was a long and arduous process to get him there, to get him nominated. It took no less than 15 votes in the House of Representatives over a, a week that saw perhaps more drama on the floor than at any point in 150 years. But here we are. We have a Speaker of the House. We have a Republican caucus with a whopping five-seat majority. We have all kinds of predictions, all kinds of trembling going into the next congressional session. What's going to happen? How can we possibly govern with a majority this thin? We've got divided government again. Biden is taking a victory lap of, of sorts, or at least he did before going to the southern border. Ben, what do you make of this? Do you have any confidence in our new Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy? Uh, yes and no. First off, I think that I will not always take a pat on the back for myself when I'm right about things. But there were a ton of people in the media saying that McCarthy's hopes were doomed. And I went on Fox and Friends midweek and said, I thought that in, in truth, it would be a slog, but that McCarthy would get there because he would not drop out and not give up. And he also knew that virtually any of the other potential candidates on the Republican side would be really hard pressed to come up with 200 votes, which is what his baseline was. And that turned out to be correct. Now, what what I think went into that, of course, is a series of decisions on both the part of McCarthy and the part of his team and the part of the, uh, you know, kind of resistant members of the House who have been pretty incorrectly described. CNN kept referring to them as the House Freedom Caucus. In reality, the majority of the House Freedom Caucus from the very first vote voted for McCarthy. So it was a portion of the House Freedom Caucus and a number of other new members who haven't even joined it yet who made all of this happen. And the reason that it happened, of course, is that they wanted to have a, a bunch of different rule changes. At least that's what Chip Roy wanted, uh, the re representative from Texas who you know, has been very vocal in wanting to uh, alter the way that the House works and basically make it less of the iron speakership of someone like Nancy Pelosi and much more of an open body. And the thing to other understand about that, of course, is that the members of the media that cover Congress and, of course, most of the people who are commenting about it on CNN and MSNBC, they actually like the Pelosi approach. It's very organized. It's very behind the scenes. It, you know, is is a essentially everybody get in line and do what I say approach. And they use this kind of attitude towards it that I think is not just ahistorical, but kind of disturbing if you think about it, which is that they don't like chaos of any kind. They don't like anything legislative to be messy. But legislative processes are messy, or they're supposed to be messy. They're supposed to be battles that happened you know, on the floor and, and, you know, are not just a situation where you go into a smoke filled room of all your friends in leadership, come out with, you know, a gigantic must pass bill that nobody has read and push it through at the last minute based on the fact that, you know, if you don't pass this, then the government will shut down. The press corps in DC is totally happy with that scenario. They think that that's totally fine and normal. That's not normal. It's not fine. Most people don't like that in America. And as much as the, the press corps kind of reacted to this by saying, oh, this is so chaotic and it's so embarrassing and so ridiculous and over the top, that that's just not true. I think that 
there were moments of embarrassment, uh, and I'll, and we can get into that. But for the most part, I would say that the the Congress that we have at the end of this, if it works according to the way that Roy and others think it will work, will be more open. We'll have more time for people to read things. We'll have more time for people to object. And when you read in the New York Times today, the the skepticism saying basically, well, you know, if they have more time to object, then legislation could get held up, you know, when it's really important that it be passed. And it's like, well, wait a minute, who thinks that it's important to be passed to the point that we shouldn't even read it before we pass it? You know, the people who are okay right. with Washington as it is. <laughs> so at the end of the day, what do we have? We have a rules package. We have a motion to vacate that's designed to enforce both what's in that package and what's not in that package in terms of the promises that McCarthy made. And we'll have to see in the coming weeks and months what this turns into, because if it gets chaotic, and it definitely could, then he could have a very short speakership and we could be right back at square one in terms of figuring out who leads this body. I like your point about the media's expectations for all this because it goes back to the abuse of that word democracy, which no longer actually means democracy, but is basically shorthand for whatever the media wants, whatever the left wing media wants. And, it, it, you know, it, it's just funny how you look at ang the ancient Athenian assembly, for example, you'd have thousands of people in there squawking at each other trying to get something through. You look even at British Parliament, there's a, a real degree of, of heavy contact back and forth, you know, real debate, fist fights break out in parliaments all over the world all the time. You can go on YouTube and find these videos. Yet somehow, some way in the House of Representatives, and I, I understand it was an ugly spectacle. I wasn't a fan of it either. And I don't necessarily think it says anything good about the Republican Party. But you had a brief tense moment between uh, it was Congressman Rogers and Matt Gates, And my God, I mean, the, the morning Joe crew, the, the morning Joe crew was just aghast. This was a, a desecration of the what did, American what did they form say? of I didn't government. See this. I, didn't, uh, I, I, I forget exactly said. what it was, but it was just CNN was all over this, too. It was just it was a disgrace, basically. It was, you know, th this is not democratic. Well, in fact, it, it actually is very democratic. This is how it works. And this is what we put our faith in at the end of the day, which is that the back and forth of ideas can somehow arrive at a synthesis, can somehow arrive at something that's better than those individual ideas themselves. And that requires a certain amount of debate and a certain amount of contact. And I looked at you know, the the, the so-called demands that the House Freedom Caucus was making, I actually think that the most worrisome is the one member, no confidence vote uh, rule. But that has a proud tradition in the House of Representatives. That was the rule until very recently. And, and the rest of this stuff, I mean, there's some kind of power attempts to agglomerate power in there over committees, for example, for the, the conservatives themselves. And, and it's fair to question that. I understand that. But most of these rules just seem like common sense. I mean, most I, I was nodding along to, to most of them that I saw. I didn't really disagree with very many of them. So I, I was kind of I'm curious how you felt about this, too. I, I was kind of torn between reeling from the spectacle of all of it while also accepting that this is a healthy democratic process. And yeah, a lot of these rules do make sense. So I agree with you. I liked basically about 75% of what they were trying to do. I'm not in favor of leapfrogging people on committees just because you like somebody and not and don't like the other person. But uh, setting that aside, I agreed with a lot of their process changes. The one thing that I do think is very questionable about this is that it almost inevitably sets up a spending fight that is going to lead to 
either shut down or or something that's more dangerous when it comes to default that I think the markets are not going to like. And in part because they always have they have the attitude, having experienced this many times before, of well, something will get worked out. And that may not actually happen (laughs) or happen as quickly as they would like. So that could be a shock to the American economic system. But, you know, for stalling that, what I would say is I disliked from the get go the way that they went about this. And the reason that I disliked it is this. It's my belief that if you are in the house and you're a member of a conference of 200 plus people, that the best way to have permanence in terms of this is a very Christian cinema attitude. It's you have to have buy-in. You have to have a significant portion of buy-in from multiple categories of people in order to have any kind of permanence to the policy changes or rules changes that you are trying to make. Meaning that if you're in a conference of you know 220 people, 225 people, you have to convince half of them that you at least that you are right and that your argument is the one that should win the day. And that if you do that then the rules changes that you advance, the, the steps that the, and policy shifts that you advance, regardless of the subject or the context, have a lot more permanence and buy-in than if you just try to shove them in at the last minute. A good example of that, you know, sort of on the flip side is, you know, in George W. Bush's second term, there was the idea that he would reform Social Security. He never ran on it, okay? Like, he never talked about it on the campaign trail. They never, you know, made it an issue. And so when he brought it up in his second term, it blew up in everybody's face and they immediately backed off of it because there was no buy-in. He had not done the work of convincing people that this was something we should do. And then when it came to, you know, a number of other different steps over the years, we've seen this, you know, if you don't do that work of convincing the majority of your colleagues that this is the right path to go down, things can be very temporary, and and be reversed as soon as there's you know a new congress which with a new set of rules a new set of dynamics you know whether it's republican or democrat and if the lesson that is taken away from the next you know year plus of this congress is that these rule changes led to chaos and problems and made it impossible for us to govern then they'll get thrown out they will get thrown out at the earliest opportunity so if you want to fundamentally change an entity in Washington, I just think that you can't go go kind of and do these cutesy maneuvers that are designed to hold everybody hostage and then say, you know, if you don't agree with us on this, then we're going to screw everything up for you and you won't even be able to pay your staff next week, which, again, they would not have been able to do if they didn't have a speaker. So this is the sort of thing where, from my perspective, the method is much, much more objectionable to me than the goal. Because I don't think that the I don't think in this context that the method engendered any kind of permanence to what what has happened here, uh, and we'll see. Because you know it, it could definitely go sideways as soon as they have a fight over a CR in the summer or debt limit. And look, I've had many people in the last week over the last forty eight seventy two hours. I've had multiple people who are staffers on Capitol Hill on the Republican side tell me I think Kevin's got till August. And that to me is just like, that's not what you want to have as kind of the first headline when you go in and start a speakership. Yeah. And we've got that looming debt ceiling fight in July. That's going to be maybe not his first real test, but probably his biggest test. I do I do wonder, though, because I agree with you about, you know, the unseemliness of this this fight, the method that was used, as you said. But right now, even though Congress looks more chaotic than ever, it's actually more top down than ever before. 
you know, Nancy Pelosi by changing the votes on the no confidence rule, just through really her own skilled leadership and vote counting was able to consolidate uh, tremendous power within the speakership. Mitch McConnell rules with an iron hand in the Senate, again, in part because he thinks that he has to. So as the parties and especially the Republican Party have become more unruly, the leaders have, have clamped down. I think it was the New York Times this morning was claiming another problem is the lack of earmarks. You can't ply voters with earmarks anymore. I'm not sure that I would go that far, but I can understand that argument as well. But but so a more authoritarian approach being taken in both houses. And I don't know, I guess I don't know how to short circuit that without a certain degree of messiness. Right. I I, I don't want that. I I think that's the wrong approach to take, especially in the so-called people's house. I mean, I think if you send your, you know, one out of 400 something representatives to Congress, they should be more than just an animatronic for the speaker, the party leader. They should have their own degree of sovereignty, their own degree of control. But I also don't know. I don't know how to change that except with the kind of spectacle that we saw this week. And yet the irony is the kind of spectacle we saw this week is only going to feed into the rationale for a more powerful speakership going forward. Right. And you end up in this awful situation where you have, you know, three people basically deciding the fiscal uh, future of the country, the the speaker, the majority leader and the, the president. And the other members are just there to vote yes or no on bills they very often often haven't read that count in the trillions of dollars. I don't know if I'm being too dystopian here, but it just seems to me fundamentally broken, and I'm not sure how to fix it. Well, I mean, one big part of this, too, and this was, I think, played into in, in the in the speaker fight as well, is that there's some people who really aren't there to do the business or do the work of legislating. They skip out on subcommittee hearings. They don't actually do the work of the of congress as it's properly understood instead they spend most most of their time essentially as hype men for their side on the media they're doing media hits constantly it's basically like being a pundit with the ability to vote on things that cost trillions of dollars and so i i think that the job of being a congressman being a congresswoman has has fundamentally changed in the last 30 years in a way that has been negative for the country and put us in this predicament where we have all these people up there who most of us wouldn't trust to run a Dairy Queen. And I think that the you know interesting thing about the way that this whole stuff played out was at the end of the day, the people, the majority of the resistance faction was satisfied with the deal that was proposed or accepted by leadership and you know went along with supporting McCarthy for speaker. But you had essentially a number of members who in the in the very late stages didn't want to go along with it or or because they had made commitments to their donors and on TV and the like that they wouldn't. And so it was a confusing element there on Friday night when you have this first round of voting where everyone on the leadership team and everyone in that body really thought that McCarthy was going to end up being speaker at the end of that first vote that started at 10 o'clock. And then because a couple of people in that uh, remaining faction didn't do what they had promised to do, in other words, they voted for someone as opposed to voting present and the like, that left them with a scenario where, you know, Matt Gates being the final vote after he had purposefully skipped his first time uh, so that he could be the final gr- vote and, and potentially grandstand about it, that left them in a scenario where, wait a minute, we're going to be one vote short. And that wasn't the plan. To me, that kind of tells you how much this is animated by personal uh, gripes 
where, you know, people were just like, I just hate Kevin and I just don't want it to be Kevin because uh, honestly, there's fundamentally, there's no difference for speaker Kevin McCarthy versus speaker Steve Scalise. There just isn't. And that was really the only option that was feasible in terms of getting all of the different moderate uh, Republicans to go along with it. The the other thing that I think that obviously precipitated the Mike Rogers scenario that you talked about, which you know, Rogers had stood up in the in the conference meeting earlier in the week and said uh, pretty obnoxiously that, you know, he, uh, he w- was hopeful that people who opposed Kevin would be punished in terms of taking them off their committee committees, doing an Ilhan Omar style, you know, treatment of them. And that really set off, you know, all the people who were part of that group. They viewed that as a, you know, uh, both a personal and a professional attack from Rogers. You know, Rogers is not someone necessarily known for his acumen in terms of that kind of thing. He's basically, I I think of him as kind of a raging barbarian type, you know, uh, who he probably thinks that he's helping. (laughs) And and I'm sure that he went over there intending to give Matt Gates a piece of his mind and possibly deck him. And (laughs) the fact that he was uh, restrained in the way that he was, uh, was definitely something that prevented it from going haywire but he wasn't the only person pissed off nobody's talked about this but the you know like beth van dyne was making a beeline toward the same group of people and you know that she was angry and it's like it's just very funny because the people who were like angriest about this were you know mike rogers dan crenshaw and then marjorie taylor green and beth van dyne and like brian fitzpatrick who's basically a democrat and it's like the point is it's a wide range of ideological frustration that happened here where I think a lot of them thought, look, you know, we had this problem in the midterms where Democrats and the media framed us as being these chaotic people who you couldn't trust to govern. And we are unfortunately trapped in a situation where, where we are bearing that out in a way that is, uh, that is not helping us. And there, there may be some truth to that. Yeah, and I, I think that when you have uh, on a Capitol Hill where punditry is the new, you know, modus operandi, words matter and rhetoric matters. And when you have members referring to each, to each other as the American Taliban, it, it just shows you the state of this conference. I mean, it, it, those divisions do count. Again, I'm all for democratic discourse, it, but it, it does raise those questions of whether they can govern. But I also I understand slightly the feeling of injustice with it too, because maybe I'm too hard on Kevin McCarthy. I've never liked him. I've never liked him since he popped up on my TV and accidentally revealed, it was back in 2015, that the Benghazi committee was just a get Hillary initiative. He like blurted that out accidentally on, on Hannity. And he just kind of thought, oh, this guy seems like a little bit of a moron. I'm not sure if he should be running the Republican caucus. And you know, you and I both live in D.C., Ben. We've heard people talking about this before, that this guy is not the brightest bulb on the Christmas tree. Kevin McCarthy is is really good at one thing, and that is fundraising. Yes. And he's he's incredibly affable. He's good at glad handing. He's good at extracting money from donors. And my sense is that he's the first truly citizens uni- post-Citizens United speaker in the sense that money matters on Capitol Hill more than it ever has. And members spend an awful lot of time raising money. And Kevin McCarthy is very good at that. And the fact that he has, you know, is about to capture the or has captured the speakership while not really caring that much about policy, certainly not being as good a vote counter as Nancy Pelosi was. I I think it shows the prevalence of money, just how much money has come to matter. And 
when I hear somebody like Matt Gates say we're talking about the biggest alligator in the swamp here, I, I kind of respond to that. I think that's probably true. He's not I don't dislike him necessarily. He could still be effective. We'll see. I mean, he he got to the position where he is that he can't be, you know, as stupid as I probably thought he was back in 2015. But I do wonder the reasons why he got there and whether this just shows the impact of big money. Yeah. Can I give you so a couple of thoughts? First off, I remember back when it was, you know, the, the, you know, the young guns frame of Eric Cantor, Paul Ryan and, and Kevin. And, you know, in that group, you know, Cantor is obviously the embodiment of K street. Ryan is the policy wonk, you know, and McCarthy is basically the money truck. And I think that one of the things that we should understand is that McCarthy has survived not by being, you know, potentially, uh, you know, uh, really a leader on policy or even someone who's that ideological. But I will say that he represents a form of conservatism that I think has a place within the Republican cohort that's slightly different than being the quote unquote biggest alligator in the swamp. I think what's much, much more his position is that he is a big tent guy. He's not in favor of, of Xing people out of the, the Republican party. And you saw that in his initial resistance to even getting rid of Liz Cheney, who he actually personally seriously disliked. And everyone knows that he disliked her. You know, but he was also kind of resistant to the idea that, like, what kind of precedent is this going to set? You know, do we really want to be Xing people out of the, the coalition? What was Liz Cheney really bad at? Raising money. She raised almost no money. And and it was interesting because it was a situation where I think if Liz Cheney actually raised money like Elise Stefanik, she might never have, like, gone in the direction that she did because people would have been okay with it. But you are absolutely right. That frame of being the first post-Citizens United speaker is very powerful in terms of of the level to which he is able to convince rich people to to give and to give you know in enormous amounts and look he spent and Marjorie Taylor Greene made this point you know he spent a significant amount of significant amounts of money to get people reelected and elected who ultimately turned against him Anna Polina Luna would not be a member of the Congress if not for the money that she got from McCarthy and his affiliated groups. Same with Lauren Boebert. She lost by less than six. I mean, she won by less than 600 votes and McCarthy gave her, you know, close to $2 million. $2 million is a difference when, it, when you're, when you have a race that close. And so I think one of the things to keep in mind about him is, you know, look, I've said this before, but he's not the, he, he is a, he's a frat leader. He is not, the life of the party, but he is the guy who makes sure the party gets paid for. And if that's your job and you view that as your job, then you operate and function in a different way than what people have gotten used to from a speaker during the kind of Pelosi and Ryan era. You're, you're more like older speakers who had, who exercised less power in the pre Jim Wright era, uh, really, uh, where, you know, they were more about the function of the party and how much the coalition was going to hold together, how big of a tent they were going to have. And look, I don't know how long McCarthy will be speaker, but I do know that, you know, he's one, one thing that is, has he's had in his back pocket for a while now is I think he's rather lucky <laughs> if, if Boehner and Ryan were unlucky people. And I think they were unlucky people. 
uh, Kevin McCarthy is, you know, a lottery winner. He actually won the lottery. That's where, you know, he's not naturally a rich person, but he won the lottery and that started him out in terms of, of his, of his business career. And it's just very funny because the, the kind of thing that I think is true of him, and this is, and this is true, you know, I think uh, generally is sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. (laughs) (laughs) And that's so true with Paul Ryan, because I think everybody knew that when Paul Ryan was going up, it was almost like, you know, we need somebody to just light on fire in this moment. And he can at least unite the party so we can offer him up. But, you know, his skill set was never managing an unruly caucus. And I don't think anybody ever thought that would last. So, yeah, extraordinarily unlucky, almost extraordinarily unlucky. I love Paul. I love Paul. I've known Paul personally. I probably interviewed Paul more than any other politician over the years. You know, it's probably up to like 40 times. And but he is just profoundly unlucky in terms of the way things framed out for him, even in the vice presidential selection, too. Oh, I mean, my even gosh. that seems like a stroke of bad luck. His thing. It was it was so weird. It was just uh, uh, my favorite thing about Paul Ryan is something actually now that it's a meme that the that the leftists post, which is, of course, an inaccurate depiction of his of his entitlement policy thing where he's pointing at a whiteboard and it says, more money for us. And underneath it says F you. <laughs> <laughs> He's so unlucky. I was thinking about him when he was up in Janesville. He did that one interview where he was like decked out in Packers gear and handing reporters beers and everything. Yeah. And I just realized that the Packers were eliminated last night. That's how profoundly yep. unlucky. We can't even talk about him without that happening. L- last subject I want to talk about real quick here is, is Trump, because of yeah. course the narrative right now is that this has eliminated Trump's influence over the party. We, we've heard that many times only for the cat to, to have have another life there you know obviously his his endorsements multiple endorsements of mccarthy didn't work there was some chatter later about him calling individual members and that helping sway them over but i'm not sure how much of that has been confirmed what do you think there there is something about this that feels a little more final though for him isn't there so this is what's really interesting to me about that element of this and again it's more complicated than what you would hear from a normal like tv pundit analysis first off there's the there's the alternate approach that Trump could have used, which is to say the first couple rounds of voting when McCarthy was losing people, if Trump had come out and basically said, I don't care who the speaker is, maybe we should give Steve a look or something like that. This could have gone in a very different direction because that could have peeled off 80 people, you know, it, not enough to make, you know, not enough to elect Scalise, but enough to make the whole thing much more, you know, fractious. Um, McCarthy has cultivated this relationship with Trump though, over the years, moving away from, if you recall, and people who hate Kevin from the MAGA side of things will bring this up constantly. You know, McCarthy had said another kind of Benghazi like moment, you know, the, the two people I worry about being paid by Russia are Dana Rohrbacher and Donald Trump way back in like 2015. And so like that, that is still used against him, but he's basically cultivated this friendship, you know, worked with him closely, you know, on a number of different things, espoused and backed, you know, the people who have been his biggest fans. And, uh, and that's something that I think really helped him in this situation, because if Trump had been on the side of the 20 against the 200, then that could have conceivably grown, I think, pretty significantly, not to be the majority, but again, making a, a rougher road. The flip side of that, though, is 
you know, uh, Matt Rosendale, who rejected the the Trump call, there's that image of him, uh, you know, like holding up his hand as opposed to uh, accepting the phone from Marjorie Taylor Greene on the floor with DT uh, clearly having uh, dialed. The, there's a feeling that I think Trump's influence is now uh, much more narrow. It's enough after the 2022 primaries to win primaries, to elevate candidates, to give them a real boost, a significant boost within the GOP electorate. But at the same time, it's a negative when it comes to winning those general election independent voters. And it, it certainly is something that doesn't help a lot, and it can hurt you depending on which state or environment you're running in. And I think after this, there's a general feeling that like, you know, Trump, Trump's power only goes so far. And it certainly wasn't enough to get someone like Matt Gates, who pretends to be, you know, uh, his bro, to, to go along with the idea of a McCarthy speakership, you know, even at the very end. It certainly didn't help with Boebert. And that's one of the things that I think is an element of this that needs to kind of be unpacked. What I do think is true, though, is all of these different factions are now invested in Kevin McCarthy having a successful speakership. If you are someone who voted for him from the get-go, you want him to have a successful speakership. If you're Trump, you want him to have a successful speakership because he's the guy you backed and you chose not to back Jim Jordan or any of these other people. And if you're part of the 15 or so that broke off and and you know finally came around to the deal, you also want him to have a successful spe- speakership because you want these rules to still be around. You want this approach to still be around and you don't want to be viewed as the reason that this Congress got nothing done or was, you know, distracted by chaotic, constant motions to vacate the chair or something like that. And if that goes sideways, they will be blamed for it. uh, And their rules will not survive. And they'll have, you know, primary challengers and the like, and it will be a rough go of it. Just to use one example, Eli Crane, freshman from Arizona, in the newly redistricted second district, he is primarily known for being the guy who is the creator of the bottle breacher, which was famously featured on Shark Tank, where it's like a it's like a cartridge that you use to open a beer bottle and you can like brand them for for weddings, for groomsmen and the like. He won in a seven way primary in Arizona. He promptly showed up and demanded to be on two of the biggest committees in Congress <laughs> uh, in exchange for his support uh, for McCarthy. When when you have people like that kind of coming in, it's a really crazy time and it could go a lot of different directions. And so from my perspective, at the end of the day, this was ultimately kind of a Trump shrinking. He doesn't quite have the dominance that he once did over the party in the wake of the 2022 midterms. Uh, It was a success for McCarthy, a success for Roy, but ultimately it, it will be an open, it is an open question at this moment and we will see in the next coming months as these battles play out, whether this is also something that turned into a perfect victory. Yeah. And just final word on Trump. I think there's been a, there, there's a narrative out there. The mainstream narrative, the centrist narrative is that he's going to have a flame out moment, that something is going to happen. He's going to do something that just causes everybody to suddenly back away and mass. And it wasn't the P tape. It wasn't the impeachment. It wasn't January 6th. We keep having these moments and they keep not happening. I think it's more like you said that his approach is gradually going to narrow and taper off over time. It's going to you know slowly diminish rather than there being some kind of burst. 
And we're, we're starting to see that now. We, we, you know, we saw that with the defiance, but and, and we'll see how much the process accelerates or even reverses going forward. Not with a bang, but a whimper. Exactly. Exactly. We got to run. My name's Matt Purple. Ben Dominic, thanks so much for uh, stopping by. And you've been listening to The District. Please check us out online. Check us out at thespectator.com and subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher if you haven't already. 